Let's do it. And now, shining the spotlight on the future of hockey. Hello, it's Paul Byron of the Vancouver Giants. I'm Kirby Dock of the Saskatoon Blades. I'm Dylan Cousins of the Westbridge Hurricanes. Hey guys, this is Cam Hurt. Spencer Knight. This is Matt Boldy. It's Alex Turcotte from Team USA. Hi, it's Maurice Sider from the Edelman. This is Alex Lafreniere of the Rimouski Oceanic. Major Junior. They were the best in the QMJHL. And now the Huskies are Memorial Cup champions. NCAA. Everybody in that Bulldog section's on their feet. The bench is ready to party as the UMD Bulldogs are back-to-back national champions. The World Juniors. Time winding down, and Finland has won the World Junior Championship in Vancouver in spectacular style. The NHL Draft. With the first pick overall, the New Jersey Devils are proud to select from the U.S. program, Jack Hughes. And more. Unbelievable. Wow. Incredible. This is the Pipeline Show. All right. Good weekend and welcome to another episode of the Pipeline Show with Guy Flaming. That's me. Thanks for stopping by this week. And if you're a newcomer to the show, then welcome to the program. Please let me know how you heard about the show, maybe where you're coming from, how long you've been listening to the show, and if you're a returning listener, that would be. And uh, I'm always curious to find out uh, how long people have been listening or how they first got introduced to the show. So uh, please let me know. For those of you who are downloading through a, a service like iTunes or Spotify, and there's a place where you can leave a rating or a comment, I would encourage you to do that as well. That would be really great. That way, somebody who stumbles across the show and is just reading the little write-up and sees that there's some comments and, and, and ratings, um, then they kind of get the impression of whether it's worth their time uh, to uh, give the show a listen. So if you like the show or if you don't, just be honest. I would encourage and I would appreciate if you would leave uh, the ratings and the uh, comments uh, for new listeners. As always, we start the episode with the question of the week. This week's question, and kind of going on with the theme that I've been uh, talking about for this month uh, with women in hockey, uh, who do you follow on Twitter who is a a female around the the sport, whether they're media or uh, a coach or something like that? Maybe they work for a team. Uh, but you follow them and you find them to be a good follow on Twitter, uh, let me know. And uh, who knows, maybe I'll uh, endeavor to get them on the uh, show later on this month. Last week we had Julie Robenheimer on and uh, Caitlin Barry. And uh, this week, a couple more, I guess, I'll tell you about in a second. Uh, but we got a couple more shows this week or this month as well. And I do have a short list of uh, guests that I'm looking for, but I always like to try to please the audience. So if you if there's a... Female guests that you'd like me to get on to talk about junior or college hockey, let me know and I will endeavor to do so. I just put that question up on Twitter a few moments ago. At TPS underscore Gee is where you can follow me on Twitter. If you're not already following me, then uh, why don't you give me a follow? Let's get to the CHL news. We'll start with the uh, top 10 rankings that comes out in the middle of the week. So coming into this weekend's play, the Ottawa 67 still holding down the number one spot followed by Sherbrooke and Portland. That's no change from the previous week. Up to number four are the Edmonton Oil Kings and the Moncton Wildcats right behind them. Shakutami falls to number six. The Everett Silvertips hold steady at seven. Meanwhile, Kitchener up to number eight. London drops to nine, and the Lethbridge Hurricanes force their way into that number 10 spot. Honorable mentions this week go to Cape Breton, Ramuski, and the Saginaw Spirit out of the Ontario Hockey League. 
statistical leaders across the CHL. Alexi Lafreniere leads the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League in scoring with 89 points. Igor Sokolov uh, with Cape Breton has 81. He passes Cedric Pare, who had been in that number two spot pretty much all season. Uh, Pare down to three. Uh, Alexander Hovinov from Moncton tied with uh, Pare. He ha- they both have 78 points. And Felix Robert from uh, Sherbrooke up to that number five spot with 76 points. The uh, top goaltenders in the queue, Colton Ellis of Ramuski, Kevin Mandelis from Cape Breton, uh, Samuel Halavich has uh, dropped a couple of spots now, at least in the goals against uh, department, uh, but still a 234, pretty solid. No goalie in the queue has that uh, 925 uh, save percentage uh, mark, uh, but Kevin Mandelis uh, pretty close at 924. We'll make our way westward and uh, stop in on uh, the Ontario Hockey League and check out the scoring leaders in the OHL. Marco Rossi continues to lead. He has 94 points on the season. Cole Perfetti is not that far behind uh, with the Saginaw Spirit. He has 92 points. Phil Tomasino still having a great season. Uh, Now with the Oshawa Generals, he has 90 points. Connor McMichael uh, works his way up to the number four spot. He has 85 points. And Arthur Kaliev with 79. Uh, He's with the Hamilton Bulldogs. Nico Dawes has reclaimed the top goals against average at 236 and this top save percentage. At 9.27, Jacob Ingham from Kitchener also with a 9.25 goals against average. He's fourth, though, when it comes to goals against at 2.69. little separation at the top of the WHL scoring race now. Adam Beckman of the Spokane Chiefs has 88 points, and Jimmy Hamblin from Medicine Hat is second. He has 81, so a seven-point gap there uh, between first and second. Zane Franklin has 77 points, he of the Kamloops Blazers. Seth Jarvis of Portland is up to number four with 72 points, and Oren Santazo from Kamloops is fifth with 68. Top goals against average is a 196. That's held by Dustin Wolf, who also has the best save percentage in the WHL at a very impressive 936. Seventh round pick by the Calgary Flames. All because he's not six foot two. Sebastian Cosa has the second best goals against average at 209 and the third best save percentage. At 925, Shane Farkas right there as well. He's third for goals against at 220 and second for save percentage at 929. Farkas plays for the Victoria Royals. Playoffs are underway at the U-Sport level. Here's what uh, happened on uh, Wednesday. This is round one action in the Atlantic Conference. Uh, Moncton with a 3-2 victory over St. FX. St. Mary's beat UPEI 5-4. Game two of those series uh, go this weekend on uh, Saturday. Uh, in Ontario, Toronto, 6-2 winners against Western. Carlton takes care of RMC. That was in Game 1. They actually played Game 2 on Thursday, and Carlton wins that one as well, so advance. Uh, Lakehead loses to Ryerson. Meanwhile, Brock beats Windsor, doubled them up, 6-3 the final there. Ottawa and Ontario Tech went to overtime, but the GGs pull that one out, 2-1 the final. UQTR, uh, 3-1 winners against Queens. Those games were all on Wednesday. On Thursday, uh, McGill with a 2-1 victory over Concordia. I told you about Carlton uh, beating RMC. Uh, as well, Laurier beat Guelph by a score of 3-1. So as it's uh, as I'm speaking with you right now, it's Friday morning. The uh, games today uh, see St. Mary's and the University of Prince Edward Island. That's a game two of the best of three. Moncton will take on St. FX. Windsor's got Brock. That's also game two in their series. Uh, and Canada West gets going tonight 
Alberta and Saskatchewan get the bye through the first round. Manitoba will go and play in Calgary. Mount Royal will host UBC. So uh, both U Sports uh, opening round series happening in the city of Calgary. I noticed the uh, latest edition of the CJHL Top 20 rankings looking very good for the Alberta Junior Hockey League. Three of the top six teams in the Top 20 coming from the Alberta Junior Hockey League, including the number one and number two teams. That's Sherwood Park and Okotoks. Uh, the Brooks Bandits are number six. There's even an honorable mention for the Spruce Grove Saints in that uh, 21 spot in the top 20. Uh, by comparison, the BCHL, uh, just two teams in the top 20. Coquitlam is ranked number four, and the Penticton V is down at number 14. But uh, this is a pretty impressive year uh, for the AJHL. You know, south of the border in the uh, USHL, basically three teams uh, of note this year. Waterloo leads the Western Conference. They have 58 points, and that is a uh, 11-point lead over uh, Omaha, who is second. And uh, then you've got Fargo and Tri-City right behind Omaha. But a pretty good cushion atop the standings for Waterloo in their conference. And in the other conference, uh, Chicago has 63 points, so the top team in the entire league, but Dubuque not that far behind. They've got 57 points with a game in hand, uh, but then there's a massive drop uh, down to Team USA. So really three teams are kind of running away with things uh, in the USHL. In the NCAA North Dakota, the number one ranked team coming into this weekend's uh, action, Cornell is a ranked second, followed by Minnesota State. Those three teams, I think, have been in those positions basically, maybe fluctuating a little bit between those three. Uh, probably for the last month or so. Minnesota Duluth up to number four. They've uh, started to turn it on in the second half. Uh, Clarkson is fifth, followed by Denver, Boston College, Massachusetts, Penn State, and Arizona State at number 10. UMass Lowell is ranked 11 and Northeastern after winning the bean pot. They are number 12 right now. And that's kind of where, that's about the cutoff when it comes to like the pairwise rankings and things like that, where if you're in that top 11, 12, uh, you are probably going to be in the NCAA tournament and aren't going to have to uh, uh, get the automatic bid by winning your conference playoffs. Uh, if you're outside of that top 12, well, you're going to have to earn it for sure. Not that those teams haven't earned it, but you've still got work ahead of you, put it that way. The rest of the top 20 goes Ohio State at 13. Then you've got Providence, Quinnipiac, Bemidji State, Maine, Harvard, Northern Michigan, and Sacred Heart at 20. We'll get to the guest list, uh, who's coming down the pipe this week on the Pipeline Show. And, of course, all guests join me via the Troubled Monk hotline. Next time you're going through Red Deer, if you're not a Red Deer resident, uh, check out the brewery and the tap room at 5551 45th Street in uh, downtown Red Deer. Or if you're thirsty and you just want some delicious craft beer, uh, go to your uh, local liquor store, your beer store, and uh, ask for Troubled Monk. And if they don't have it, demand they get it. The daycation, one of my favorites, uh, but today I have been saving it. I am going to enjoy the Bucktooth Belgian White for the first time. Haven't tried it yet, so uh, today in the last segment when I crack one open, uh, it will be my uh, very first uh, taste of the uh, Bucktooth Belgian White. I've had the Golden Gates, and I've had the Open Road American Brown Ale, the Pesky Pig, the Rebels Red, and I've had the uh, Iced Tea as well, the Troubled Tea. We've even had a couple of the sodas that they make, the Saskatoon Soda and the Root Beer. Pretty much something for everybody if you're into a craft beer. And, uh, boy, if you go to the tap room in Red Deer, they have a lot on tap that's uh, not available in your local liquor store or beer store. 
And just some of the names are uh, fantastic. The uh, Oktoberfest Maybach, the uh, Mozart Vienna Lager, the Badlands Sour Brown Ale, the Loch Ness Dry Stout, the Helter Spelter Dunkelweizen, the Mary Samsonite Barrel Aged Cherry Sour. Uh, this one actually might be uh, right up my alley. The Endless Love Barrel Aged Sour Saison with Apricot. How about that? It's Valentine's Day. Go get an Endless Love. Uh, but when you stop in at the tap room, tell them the Pipeline Show sent you or uh, follow them on Twitter and let them know the Pipeline Show told you to do that as well. At Troubled Monk is how you can get them on Twitter. All right, the guest list today. We're going to start with an NCAA campus report. My uh, guest, her name is Jashvina Shaw. She writes for College Hockey News and does a great job covering the uh, Big Ten Conference, but went to school at BU, so you know that she was watching the uh, Beanpot this past week. I spoke with her on Tuesday, the day after the uh, final game of the Beanpot. That went on Monday. So we'll get her reaction to that. But I also wanted to talk to her about what we're talking about uh, with our female guests this month, just their experiences as female reporters or females inside the world of uh, hockey, a largely a predominantly male uh, sport. Uh, so I wanted to get their perspective. So you hear from uh, Jashvina about that. Then we'll have a In the Dub segment for Dub Network and Moose Jaw Warriors assistant coach or coach assistant, as the official title goes. Her name is Olivia Howe, and uh, she played at Clarkson for four years, won a national title, now returns home to Moose Jaw and is uh, on the coaching staff of uh, the WHL's Moose Jaw Warriors, first female coach in the history of the WHL. So great story there. You can hear more about her or learn more about her in uh, the second segment today. Then we'll have a 2020 draft spotlight segment. A personal favorite of mine for the draft this year. His name is Jake Neighbors, plays for the Edmonton Oil Kings. And uh, I think you're going to really enjoy that conversation. I've already said it. He's one of the uh, best interviews uh, of all the uh, draft spotlight players we've had on the show this year. He's one of the best for sure. Uh, Then we're going to end the show today with a little bonus audio. Cam Moon uh, had a discussion with uh, Brent Sutter on the morning he was about to coach Game 1000. That was... On the way to Victoria, I think they did the uh, conversation on the ferry crossing over to the island and uh, wanted to share that with you. Uh, 1,000 games, quite the benchmark for Brent Sutter behind the bench of the Red Deer Rebels. So uh, that's a loaded show for you. We will start it off with an NCAA campus report. Jashvina Shaw from College Hockey News. She's up first here on the Pipeline Show. McCarthy trying to get it out of his own zone. Picks it up again behind the USA goal. This time a safe play and he finds Turcotte. With Gildon, shorthanded and over line. out in front, score! What a move! Alex Turcotte, a shorthanded goal. It's Alex Turcotte from Team USA and you're listening to the Pipeline Show. Development. NCAA hockey offers all that and its players graduate at a 90% rate. Jonathan Taves. Backhand scores! Wow, what a goal! Colton Pareko. And Patrick Sharp. We're stars on campus before the NHL stage. Whether you are a fan or a player, nothing compares to college hockey. Visit collegehockeyinc.com and follow at College Hockey. Champions of the college hockey world! 
You're listening to The Pipeline Show with Guy Flaming. Great Scott! Back on The Pipeline Show, we begin this week's episode with another uh, NCAA Campus Report segment. That Those are always brought to you by College Hockey, Inc. If you're a player or you have a player in your family that is exploring all their options and need to know what they need to do or not do in order to maintain their NCAA eligibility, well, College Hockey, Inc. is a great place to uh, start. Get in touch with Mike Snee or Nate Ewell, and they can steer you in the right direction or answer any questions that you might have. The College Hockey segment today, my guest is uh, Jashvina Shaw, who writes for College Hockey News and covering the Big Ten, but I know uh, she went to BU and so has an interest in the bean pot. And I uh, I noticed a tweet last night uh, on uh, Twitter, I, at Ice Hockey Stick is uh, Jashvina's uh, Twitter handle. If BU loses tonight, my soul will collapse. Uh, Jashvina, maybe we have to start with the bean pot. How's your soul tonight? <laughs> Well, that tweet was actually in reference to the women's game because technically I'm not allowed to root for the men because I do cover <laughs> men's college hockey. Okay. Um, but it's it's still it's tough, I think. To I mean, you know, I went through it as a student a lot of times, uh, losing in overtime, losing to BC in overtime in the Bean Pot, which is like the worst way to lose. Um, and it's just I don't know, like it's a weird thing, and it's really hard to explain <laughs> to someone who's not like from a bean pot school, like why it matters so much, but it just, it just matters a lot. So, um, you know, it's been, it's been tough, but also the fact that it ended so late means that I kind of just like dazed through all of it. So it hasn't really hit me. The the bean pot tournament itself, it is probably very difficult to explain the importance and the popularity of it to people outside of that market. It's kind of like trying some, maybe somebody playing Minnesota high school hockey to explain what that is like, the high school circuit in Minnesota. How would you kind of uh, try to break it down for somebody who is not familiar with the bean putt and, and uh, just give them a, uh, an impression of how big of a deal it is? It's been going on for a really long time, and it's basically like it's all Boston, so it's the most – well, I mean, BC is technically not in Boston, but <laughs> um, it's basically just bragging rights for the city, and it's kind of like – I think part of the reason it holds so much meaning is because at least previously, maybe now it's it's getting a little bit different, but you know, a lot of kids who would come play for Harvard, Northeastern, BUBC were all Massachusetts kids. They were local kids. So Mm -hmm. this was a tournament that they grew up watching. So it was a tournament that they loved. And then it's kind of like a very big hometown thing. So it's like, your hometown rivalry and it's just I think that's part of the reason why it matters so much and that kind of just gets passed down from generation to generation like it's just it's just a really big thing for the schools it's a really big thing for the players it becomes a big thing for the fans. Jashvina Shaw from College Hockey News my guest Uh, now you cover the Big Ten for College Hockey News although I just saw you posted a story uh, very recently uh, about Hockey East and Mm -hmm. Potential changes, but the unlikelihood of those changes actually happening. Can you summarize that story for us? Yeah, basically, um, it's about the news that Hockey East could potentially disband and be absorbed into a different conference, like in America East. And basically, I argued that it's really not. I mean, it's probably not going to happen. It would be a bad move if it did happen. Um, I did work for a conference the size of America East, and I can tell you right now, there may be more resources, but that there are also more sports. So those resources are really divided. And at the end of the day, it's kind of a wash. You're not going to get more mm. 
um, when you're with a, a different conference, like a multi-sport conference, than if you're with just a hockey-specific conference. And But it's not about that. It's really about what hockey is, wants to accomplish and what they're not doing to accomplish, but what they can do. Like, the gold standard right now is the NCHC. There's no question about it. Um, because... And basically, you know, I talked about them and what they've done, and that's what all the other conferences need to gear towards. And in some cases, I think it, it was easier for the NCHC to do because it was a brand new conference. So they weren't carrying any of like that very stubborn identity with them. You know, it's not like you're going to a Hockey East and saying like, hey, we need you to be really interactive and silly on social media. It's Hockey East, you know, that's not really going to fly. Um, but with the NCHC, you're starting from scratch. They don't have that kind of tradition. So for them, it was I think it makes it a little bit easier to go and be really fan first and like engagement first, because ultimately, like, you know, I can stream anything I want online. And I think with the shift in conferences, like, I think, you know, we just wrote that story on attendance, like, it's tough to get people's interest right now. So you really have to like go above and beyond and people care about having a community and like being silly and like having fun and having that engagement. Uh, you're right. And attendance, it's not just a college hockey thing. I think it's sports in general. And because of what you said, you can watch all of these things online or on your phone or on your tablet. It doesn't matter. You don't have to go to the game to watch the game anymore. And I think that's a challenge uh, for everybody. Now, you cover the Big Ten, and Big Ten gets a mention in that article that you wrote and, and suggested that uh, they're falling a little bit behind in regard. And, and unlike the NCHC, maybe don't engage the fan as much as you think they should. And it's also a, a big conference that where hockey is kind of small in the Big Ten in general. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I think from the start, the Big Ten kind of just assumed, I mean, this is all my speculation, um, because what I observed, which is not speculation, they didn't really do anything um, to kind of like, you know, really push the Big Ten hockey when it was formed. And I think that's partly mm. because like, they just kind of assumed they would rely on the Big Ten name and they assumed that was enough. But college hockey is so vastly different from college football and college basketball that it doesn't work the same way. And they kind of really missed the boat on gaining that, like, really. And they really had to push because, you know, they had Minnesota fans who were very unhappy with losing their old rivals. So, you know, the Big Ten wasn't exactly in the best position where they could just go with it and it would be fine you know they had to really work on that and they didn't you know if you look at like being in I remember when we were in Minneapolis for the inaugural Big Ten tournament because okay so the inaugural Big Ten tournament was in St. Paul the inaugural NCHC tournament was in Minneapolis and like you didn't really you saw a lot of like NCHC stuff but you didn't see a lot of Big Ten mm -hmm. stuff and it's just kind of like that theme and you know they haven't been able to keep the that tournament successful like the atten attendance wise which is why they had to move it back to on campus and I think like they really missed an opportunity to be really engaging with the fans and like really making it that kind of community that you really need especially because for places like Minnesota and Wisconsin that literally is their community and it's a much different you have to approach it much differently than you would a different sport. Josh Vina Shaw from College Hockey News my guest here on the Pipeline Show all right, let's look at the Big Ten. Hockey-wise right now, Penn State sitting on top of the conference standings, but a three-way tie for second. Notre Dame, Michigan, not that far behind. Really, only Wisconsin has struggled this year. It's a pretty tight uh, pretty tight conference overall, and that, that leads to more excitement. Yeah, it's... Um... 
really, I don't know who's going to end up winning because I think that a lot of teams have, I remember that Michigan was picked pretty high and I think Wisconsin was too, because people kind of looked at it and they said, okay, Wisconsin is one of the best freshman classes in the country. So they kind of just threw them up there. But in reality, Wisconsin is just a whole other thing, but like, Everyone, and I mean, this is like some teams that have been at the bottom are doing really well, like Michigan's kind of turning it on right now. Michigan State, I think, is probably the best team in that conference. And then, you know, Minnesota's kind of getting their footing back. But then Notre Dame is sort of struggling. Ohio State is sort of struggling. So now all the teams have kind of met in the middle. And you really don't know who's going to win on any given night. And because the way the format has changed so that we do um, now an opening round, quarterfinals, that's of three series then the semifinals then the week after that is the finals it's like everything is kind of all over the place and you have no idea where it's all gonna land come tournament time i i just had guy gadowski on the show last week and uh but i and he agreed i i said michigan state's got to be one of the best stories because they've been a bottom feeder for you know five or six years now and are now really they've turned the corner what has danton cole done there as the head coach to really turn that that program around I think you could really see it from the first year he took over. Um, you can generally tell within the second semester of a coach's time um, whether or not it's really going to be a change. And, I mean, you could just tell, like, the players looked way more invested. They were working harder. Like, they were actually, like, a team. You know, they could play much better on the offense. And I think that was, like, a big thing is um, they were kind of melding both defense and offense, where if you if you looked at teams um, – under Tom Anastas, it was, they weren't, their offense really just wasn't there. Like sometimes they did have the talent, but they just weren't able to be a cohesive unit. And under Cole, I think that's one of the really big things that um, they managed to do. And he's getting a lot out of his players who he didn't even recruit, by the way. Mm-hmm. And I think really like, you know, he's got a lot of experience, you know, coaching younger kids, developing them. And I, you know, he has some ties to this team and I think he's very invested and it's just like, he's the the focus that he's had with the team and like it, it's just it's kind of hard to explain but it's been there since day one and I think now as he gets more acclimated to the team the team gets more acclimated to him it's really starting to show um, itself in the standing how are the golden gophers different under Bob Mosco than they were under uh, coach Lucia for for so many years they it seems like the gophers are still trying to kind of find their way Yeah, I'm still not entirely sold on that yet. Um, I'm still kind of looking at it with the thing with Mosco is that I'm, I'm waiting for him to kind of recruit his players into the system and see how they work. I think Cole didn't need to do that to show that, or he just the situation that he was in. Um, I don't need to see that from him to know that the team's going to be okay. Uh, Just the Gophers are just very odd. (laughs) Like, I mean, I, I don't even know if it's like a, like, I don't know what it is. I really did think it was a product of coaching because if you have a team that makes it to the frozen four returns the insane roster and struggles the way that they did, I don't think that's a good sign. And I really think that does reflect on coaching. Hmm. And I mean, I think that, they're kind of just like still trying to find their identity and, you know, Moscow hasn't been around that long and like, they're kind of in a transition stage where like everything's kind of up in the air. I mean, they're still, they still have some really great players that they're recruiting on a regular basis. Um, but they did lose a big one in Rem Pit like last year. So, I mean, I think as they kind of like, they're like Rocky and they're trying to iron it out. And I, I think Moscow's a really good coach. So I, I think that, 
when he gets his players in and when they've kind of evened that out and start getting their recruiting a little bit more settled, I guess. Because right now, like, you look at the team and I think they've had good players, but I don't know that those players have all panned out to be who we thought they would be when they came in. So that's, like, another big thing. But right now, everything's kind of – they're very much a mystery to me. So I'm still kind of waiting to see what will happen with them. Well, three more weekends of regular season uh, games to go and then the playoffs. What are you looking for uh, what sort of stories are you following here in the next uh, three weeks as the, the regular season uh, unfolds? Yeah, I think um, Michigan State is definitely the top one. I, I really do believe they're the best team in the Big Ten right now in terms of the way that they play, how solid they are. And a big part of that is John Lethman. Like, he's been really, really good for them in net. Like, it's incredible the difference that in his play from this year to last year, you know, just with the confidence that he's been able to get for himself. Um, outside of that, I think, like, you know, a lot of the teams are kind of wishy-washy, like Ohio State's kind of going back and forth. Penn State is, too. Um, Michigan might be another one to look in because I was just talking to Mel Pearson, like, a, I don't know, a month ago, and he was, you know, he, he made up a good point. Yeah, we're not where we are, but when they made the Frozen Four in 2018, they weren't doing well in the first half of the season. They just got hot at the right time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important to remember because I think any one of these teams, except, mm, I'm not sold on Minnesota, but every pretty much all of these teams, except for Wisconsin, I think can get hot at the right time. Um, so you really never know. Like, and it's a one game tournament, you know, once we get to that point in the semifinals and the championship game, anything could happen. So just focus on the goaltending because that's going to be the difference between the difference for these teams between who's going to succeed and who's not going to succeed come playoffs. Jashmina Shaw from College Hockey News is my guest. I wanted to talk to you also about just being a woman covering hockey in general and, and your experiences firsthand, what it's like. I know I've been covering hockey for about 20 years now, but uh, being a, a guy and a white guy probably have different experiences than you have had. Uh, what brought you to hockey in the first place? Um, I actually grew up a big football fan because my parents lived in Cleveland, so we never watched hockey. But I was born in Boston, so I was pretty loyal to all Boston teams. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually lived where a lot of the players live. So, like, my dad's barber would, like, cut hair of the Bruins players, but we were just never into hockey. And then when I was, like, 15, I decided I should follow the Bruins. I'm being a bad fan. And then I started watching the Devils, and that was it. Like, I just had to turn on the TV one day, and I was hooked at, like, the speed of the game. Nice. And you went yeah. to BU, so did you start, co- like, were you covering the Terriers while you were there? Yep, I started covering, I covered women's hockey my sophomore year, um, and I covered the men my junior and senior year, and by the time I left for Australia my junior year at that point, I was, like, already just, it it was a part of me, like, being around all those people and, like, the atmosphere, and so many people were so invested in that program that it just rubbed off on me, and I, like, really bought into college hockey at that point. Nice. Now, I know hockey in general, and certainly the NHL is, has always talked about how hockey is for everyone. I follow you on Twitter, and I see that often you, you talk about how, well, it's maybe not quite there yet. Uh, what still needs to happen uh, in, in order for, for you to be satisfied that the hockey and, and the hockey culture is doing everything it can to be welcoming to everybody? Well, I think they need to, um, first of all, not hire people who've used racial slurs in the past, especially those who haven't shown any inch of growth or who haven't even apologized 
to the player they victimized. Um, I am talking about John Van Beesbrook at USA Hockey. Like, it's pretty low to sign a declaration of principles and then also still employ him. Uh, that's like a major signal that you actually don't care about minorities because you're prioritizing Van Beesbrook over, you know, um, Trevor Daly and all the people of color who look at this situation. So that is one of the reasons why I think it's more lip service done. And obviously this is specifically about USA hockey, but even in terms of the NHL, like, you know, you'll usually see fans, you see teams like throughout statements, like we care about inclusivity, but you can't be hockey is for everyone unless you're actively fighting against um, bigotry, like racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, like you actually need to say, we don't accept transphobia. We don't accept racism. You can't just say we we care about inclusivity because they're not the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of just a way to pander to everybody and pretend you're doing something instead of actually doing something. And then there's really no, there's not a big enough effort to like, you really need to look at the people you're hiring. And to me, like, that's the biggest red flag. It's like, are you hiring the right people? Are you hiring diversely? Are you supporting those people? Because instead of having John Van Beesbrook in that position, you could put a person of color in that position in a spot. And at the end of the day, like, the other big thing for me is like the education part. I don't really see them making an effort to educate players. And, you know, for USA hockey, like it's got to start at the bottom. Like it has to be done at the top too, but you also have to start with the kids when they're young. Like you got to look at who you're letting coach your kids, because if your coach is like saying things like what John Van Beesbrook did, what do you think the kids are going to think is okay? And how do you think they're going to turn out? Mm -hmm. Like hockey is very incestuous, as I like to say. And it's, around the same people like it's very insular and unless you are actively making sure that the coaches are the right people coaching and teaching your kids and like unless you're making sure that those kids are educated when they're young you know this culture thing isn't going to change it's, it's not as easy as just saying oh like we're for inclusivity and we're anti-racism like it takes a lot of work and whether it can fully be done or not fully be done I don't know I know you can work to diminish the problem and I know that that work isn't being done yet have you on a personal level had uh, issues because of being either a woman or a visible minority? Yeah, several times. Uh, it's actually why I stopped covering the Devils because I had a very not great run-in with another reporter while I was there mm. that could have potentially been dangerous to me. And at that point, I was like, you know, I cover college hockey mostly anyway, so I'm just not going to do this because I don't enjoy it enough to put myself in which is a weird thing to say right I don't enjoy enough to put be willing to put myself in danger yeah. because 90% of the time it's like whenever I walk out of the house I'm always putting myself in some sort of danger whenever I walk into a rink I'm always doing it and that's just something like you know we live through it so it's just it is what it is you know you kind of just go about your business because you're not going to stay shut inside what kind of a life would that be um, but I've had you know people be racist to me I've had um very weird, you know, people are being sexist all the time, uh, very visible too. Like people will be nice to you on the inside and then they'll just like be racist outside and you only learn about it secondhand. Um, or people will complete, like people will stop talking to you because you're like, Hey, this isn't okay that you said that. Or that so-and-so said this because it's racist. So it's, it's definitely, definitely really been an issue. It's only something I think I've been paying more and more attention to since I graduated from BU, because I think while I was at BU, I was in that I wasn't actually the only person of color there. I wasn't the only woman there. I wasn't, you know, even on the team, you know, we had players of color. So, and, you know, everyone on staff was great and coach Parker was great. So 
I didn't really pay so much attention to it until I graduated. And I was like, okay, well, it's definitely, definitely not like it is at BU. Well, and social media seems to be, boy, Twitter can be just such a cesspool at times. And uh, and I follow you and, and several other female journalists, and I, I can see some of the harassment and, and just gross vulgarities that uh, that you guys have to deal with. And I'm continually impressed that, uh, that you even stay on the social media. Uh, but I guess that would be letting the trolls win if you if it uh, affected you that way. But it's got to be. I, I again, I'm just impressed that you you're able to put up with it and continue uh, doing the job as well as you do. Yeah, I mean, I usually what I, I people to get off of media if it's really bad. Um, it's hard to do kind of if you're like really combative and you have a lot of pride because you're like I don't want to show that I've lost. But mm-hmm. you should really just take the L and lock your account and walk away sometimes because that's just much better for your health, which I actually am off social media more now than I used to before. Um, I'm also much busier than I was before. And I'm, you know, like more often than not, I'll try to stay out of it. But sometimes I see things that are really, really just I can't let it go. So I have to like engage with the person. And I mean, it doesn't really bother me per se. Like a lot of the stuff I get, like at this point, I'm kind of desensitized to it. So I'm just like, whatever, it doesn't really get to me. Mm. <laughs> so it's just like, I don't know. It is what it is. Like I, I have 80,000 other things on my plate. You know, I have a full-time job. So like, <laughs> I, I don't have as much that as much time anymore to really like dedicate to being specifically upset about the things people say to me, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Jashvina, I really appreciate your time. I also appreciate a couple of years ago, uh, my wife is going through this Bollywood stage and you recommended a, a, a long list of uh, movies for her to check out. And that went over very well, so I appreciate that. Uh, and if the <laughs> yeah, hot, if if the the journalism career uh, changes for you, you could always be a, a movie critic or something like that because uh, you pick some good films uh, for her. So I appreciate that, <laughs> and I appreciate your time. I hope we can do this again. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. That was Jashvina Shaw from College Hockey News, uh, recapping the uh, Bean Pot as well as updating us on. The Big Ten Conference and uh, sharing some of her uh, personal experiences uh, covering hockey in a uh, predominantly male environment and uh, certainly as a person of color as well. So perspectives that uh, I definitely cannot bring to the table. Really appreciate her uh, sharing some of that uh, with us this week here on the Pipeline Show. Up next, another lady making inroads into, well, in this case, junior hockey, the first female coach in the history of the Western Hockey League. She is on the coaching staff of the Moose Jaw Warriors. Her name is Olivia Howe. She won a national championship with uh, Clarkson in her NCAA uh, days as a player and now on the coaching staff of a Western Hockey League team. A great story. Learn more about her, hear from her, next here on the Pipeline Show. Out on the end boards. Brandon turns it over. Peck Ford comes around. Has Woosh shot. He scores. Chet Woosh snaps it far side over the glove of Logan Thompson. And the Warriors have extended their lead. Hi, this is Jet Woo from the Moose Jaw Warriors. And you're listening to The Pipeline Show. Gate 
into your weekend with Edmonton Oil Kings hockey at Rogers Place. The Medicine Hat Tigers return for retaliation, squaring off this Saturday. Don't miss your shot to see the WHL's most exciting team live. The stands are going to shake with Edmonton spirit. Oil Kings, Tigers. The puck drops Saturday night at 7. Great family entertainment at Rogers Place starts at just $20 a seat. Save on Dave game pricing now at oilkings.ca. You're listening to the Pipeline Show with Guy Flaming. Dance off, bro. Me and you. We are back on the Pipeline Show with Guy Flaming, and time for a, a WHL segment. That, of course, means it's an in the dub segment brought to you by dubnetwork.ca. You can stay up to date on everything happening around the Western Hockey League by uh, bookmarking Dub Network. Subscribe to the Daily Dose of the Dub as well. Comes right to your inbox. You don't even have to search for it. Uh, my guest today. Is he one of the assistant coaches with the Moose Jaw Warriors, Olivier Howe? Uh, welcome to the program, Olivia. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you making the time today. Uh, tell me about the uh, the season to this point for the Warriors. Obviously, things have changed since the trade deadline and uh, coaching changes as well. Uh, what's the mindset of the team right now going down the stretch? Uh, I think right now um, we're just a young team that's trying to uh, kind of find their way in the league here. So, just, you know, keeping it simple and light, um, you know, not the best record for our squad this year. So I'm um, just trying to keep the boys positive and make sure that they're getting every um, piece of this season out of it as they can so that they're ready for next year and uh, can bring every experience that they've had this year into to the next year. I know you weren't with the team a couple of years ago when, uh, you know, Alan Miller went all in uh, for that season and eventually well, you got to pay for that, and that kind of is where the team is at right now. But so this isn't really a surprise for anybody involved. But how do you keep the the atmosphere positive and things like that as a coach? Yeah, no, it, I don't think it's much of a surprise at all. But um, it's kind of what we expected um, for for the kids. I think it's just you know keeping things light, um, not trying to get too serious. Um, like we know what what we expect from them. They know what what we expect. So um, just you know you got to mix in some some fun practices, some fun fun drills and stuff like that just to keep them interested and, and like I said, help them learn for, for the rest of this year and carry that in experience into next year. And for yourself, now you're not on the road with the team right now, so on a, you know, during home games, are you on the bench? No, I'm not. I'm up in the press box for, uh, for those games, just kind of watching up there, and then I go down in between periods and kind of Say what I what I was seeing and whatnot, and see if we can make some little tweaks or some reminders to the to the boys and whatnot. Okay, so you're like the eye in the sky person. You get the uh, the vantage point. You're, you're like uh, one of the broadcasters. Like we always have to sit upstairs, and and uh, it's kind of easy to see the game unfold from up there. It gives a, a different perspective. Yeah, for sure, and it lets me see things maybe that the coaches don't see while they're busy, uh, you know, talking to the players on the bench or, or whatnot. So it's good for them to kind of get another opinion through uh and perspective through my eyes up there now has your role changed at all with the coaching change since uh, tim hunter was let go has have you taken on more responsibility or anything um it depends on the day honestly um mark has been has been great with me um you know he he asked more specifics from me and, and stuff like that so that's been great being able to be a little more involved there and obviously 
with just three of us um, out there and practices and stuff like that, you get to be a little more involved and, and it's, it's been good that way for sure. I'm speaking with Olivia Howe. She's the, uh, now I want to get the title correct, uh, coaching assistant. I don't know exactly how that's different than being uh, an assistant coach. Is there, in your mind, any difference? Well, I think um, for for me, it's just, it's kind of more of um, an internship um, title, I guess. Okay. Um, it, I have a full-time job, too, on the side here. So um, it's kind of... Uh, I don't know. It's just the title that that Alan um, and I talked about, and and it is what it is. But um, you know, I'm I'm not as involved as I want to be. But hopefully, uh, things can can go in a better direction here for me. Um, kind of getting my work schedules figured out and trying to align things, and you know, hopefully, I can spend more time uh, at the rink and whatnot. All right. Well, that's kind of where I wanted to take the conversation was, you know, when you joined the team, what was it, October, something like that, uh, what your expectations were at that point and if things are progressing the way you, the way you want. Sounds like you'd like to take on a little bit more. Yeah, for sure. Um, like I said, I have to put my job uh, first and foremost, sure. um, but I've talked with, with Mark and Scott and Alan and, you know, just trying to figure out um, – if I can do more and, and where I can do more and try to reassure them that, you know, I'm, I'm giving my time outside of my job to this uh, club. So um, hopefully, you know, if I can make things work and make my schedules line up a little, a little more then uh, I can be there more often and I can be more involved because I've learned so much already. So I can't imagine if I get to spend more time around, uh, you know, what will come of it. My audience is across North America. I think everybody around the WHL has heard your story now and is familiar uh, with your background. But for the benefit of the the larger audience that might not be up to speed yet, can we uh, discuss a little bit about your career path and uh, the fact? I mean, you're you're from Moose Jaw. You're coaching there now, but uh, you were a player and a high level player uh, going off to Clarkson after four years at Notre Dame and Wilcox, Saskatchewan. So I mean, you, you've been around the game for a long time. At what point as a player? Did you start thinking about coaching? Um, it honestly wasn't until after I graduated at Clarkson. Um, I, I'd coached, you know, hockey camps and stuff growing up and in my summers, a little bit of summer jobs and, and whatnot. And then uh, I never maybe thought of taking it super seriously. And after I graduated and kind of was deciding if I was going to go play um, professionally with the CWHL or or stay home and, and get a job. And I was actually set up to be in the draft and, and head out to Toronto. And I got a call from Notre Dame and they offered me a coaching position. So it, it was kind of hard to turn down just having job security and, you know, just kind of knowing what your future holds instead of kind of risking it. So um, I ended up staying at home and coaching. And that year I really kind of fell in love with it and, decided that it was something I wanted to pursue. Nice. And at Clarkson, what led you to Clarkson? Why was that the right program for you? Um, I liked the fact that it was a smaller university, um, small campus, not a lot of students. Everything's kind of in walking distance. And then when I went on my visit, just the coaching staff and, and all the stories they had to tell and the the people I knew already there, it, it just it all made sense to me. And honestly, one of the best decisions I've ever made. Now, in your opinion, what the state of the women's pro game right now, the, the upheaval of the leagues and, and everything, where where is that right now? How would how would you like to see it play out? 
Oh goodness, that's it's tough. <laughs> uh, I mean, I have so many friends who are going around um, playing in those games and um, you know trying to promote the women's game as best they can, and and you just feel for them because they don't have a home right now necessarily mm-hmm. they're they're traveling from city to city country to country just trying to to bring awareness to this and i hope uh i hope it's going to work its way out soon um i could see it going on for another year before something serious happens here and uh they get it together but i do i do think that they will have a league in in a year or two yeah for sure now again, go back to uh, being a, a player at Clarkson. Uh, now I know the men's team is the Golden Knights. Is it, what's the ladies' team called? Same thing, Golden Knights as well. Uh, so as a Golden Knight, 37 points in your final year, 16 of those were goals. Um, you were an offensive-minded player. As a coach, do you find it easier to teach the offense, or I, I guess as a player, I, I, I can't say that I ever saw you play, so I don't know what the defensive side was like. But are you more comfortable talking offense with guys? Um, it maybe comes more naturally, um, but from being around the game for so long and, and having all these um, relationships with people um, in all areas of the, the sport and obviously with all the coaches I've ever had, and mm-hmm. you, kind of, you kind of learn it all, a full all-around game, and, and you're prepared to, to coach all around, but I know I'm still learning um, both sides of the puck, so... I mean, it's it's great both ways, so I wouldn't say maybe I'm necessarily better one way or the other, but they're both fun. <laughs> Are there differences, like significant differences, between uh, coaching guys and coaching girls? Um, yeah, I would say so. I, I mean, I don't think that they're to be made a big deal about these differences, but obviously, you know, with men, it's going to be a more fast-paced game, um, so everything kind of happens a little quicker. And then there's the the aspect of, you know, the hitting and all that. And then on the other side of the the table there, there's all the trading and, and all that that goes on that you don't really see in the women's game. Right. Um, so there's all that behind the scenes uh, operation stuff that, that I've got to get a sneak peek into and kind of open my eyes to that side of it as well. Yeah, and no trades or anything like that in, in college hockey either. So the, all of that is sort of new. Yeah, it's been it's been quite a year um getting to sit in on those meetings and and kind of see how things go on there. So, it's been been great. Uh now being back uh, in Moose Jaw, what's it like for you and, and was that part of the attraction of of joining the Warriors is that it was in familiar uh, setting? Yeah, honestly, it worked out perfect. Um you know, I, like I've said before, I, I never really um thought that an opportunity like this would come about but when Alan asked it was just it seemed perfect it was I'm home and now I'm getting to do something that I love at a really high level and and get to you know learn as much as I can from the staff here in Moose that they've been great and I've learned so much so hopefully um, more opportunities like this come up for for other women who are willing to get into this the men's side of things. I was going to ask, do you feel almost some sort of a trailblazer, like a pioneer of some sort, that maybe this year, I don't know if you're the first ever, but uh, I think at least in the junior level, I think you're the first uh, female coach on a major junior hockey program. Is that correct? Uh, I think in the WHL, yeah. I think there was a woman in the that coached in the queue a few years back. All right. Uh, but do you think maybe this does open up the door a, a little bit for others? I mean, I would hope so. Um, it's definitely not not the reason I did it, and I didn't think much of it when this opportunity came about. I just, 
you know, thought of it as another great stepping stone for, for a coaching career. And, um, the feedback that I've gotten, it's just been wild. And I have heard things like you just mentioned, um, trailblazer and stuff like that, which I don't necessarily think of myself as, but I, I can see how other people do. Have former teammates or girls that you played with uh, at other levels, uh, maybe outside of Clarkson, have, have they talked to you about the experience to, you know, pick your brain a little bit and wonder if it's a good fit for them too? Yeah, for sure. Like, um, we just went back to Clarkson a couple weekends ago for an alumni weekend and, and all the girls and the coaching staff there, we had great conversations and, and just seeing where everyone wants to go and, and kind of comparing the games, um, you know, female and male college to WHL. And it was, it was great conversations. And I think it was pretty eye opening, um, for a lot of them who haven't been around the men's side and, and whatnot. Nice. Well, Olivia, I really appreciate your time. I certainly wish you and the team the uh, the best of luck. I hope uh, we can chat again. Perfect. Thank you very much for having me. That was Olivia Howe from the Moose Jaw Warriors. Great story there. And maybe it does open the door to outside-the-box thinking a little bit more than we've seen. And, uh, I mean, I'm still waiting to see, you know, broadcasters covering junior college hockey who are uh, women. And we haven't got that far yet, as far as I know. If there, if there's a broadcaster out there that is calling games or even doing color, please let me know. I, I would be interested in following up on that story as well. But uh, you know, maybe we see start seeing more women coaching guys teams. Uh, we've seen lots of guys coaching women's teams, but not as much uh, the other way. So maybe this changes that and, and uh, gives GMs out there another option to think about. We'll see. Up next, 2020 Draft Spotlight segment, uh, one of the uh, best Draft Spotlight segment uh, interviews I think we've had so far this season here on Season 15. Jake Neighbors of the Edmonton Oil Kings, he's next here on the Pipeline Show. Hi, this is Curtis Lazar of the Edmonton Oil Kings. Hey, it's Brett Pollock. Hi, I'm Keegan Wolf. Hey, it's Tristan Jari. Hi, this is uh, Lauren Bressois. Griffin Reinhardt. This is Aaron Irving. Hey, it's Dyson Mayo. This is Henrik Samuelson. I'm Thomas Winsor. Hey, I'm Mark Pesek of the Edmonton Oil Kings, and you're listening to the Pipeline Show. From the organization that brought you Mark Messier, Matt Benning, and Ian Mitchell, Spruce Grove Saints Junior A Hockey is officially back for the 2019-2020 season with all the action taking place at the Grant Fear Arena in Spruce Grove. With tickets starting at just $15 per person, AJHL Hockey provides some quality entertainment. For more information, visit www.sprucegrovesaints.ca. Listening to the Pipeline Show with Guy Flaming. And boom goes the dynamite. We are back on the Pipeline Show. We're going to have a 2020 draft spotlight segment now, and my guest comes from the WHL, which means it's an in the dub segment. Stay up to date on everything happening around the league uh, by uh, going to dubnetwork.ca. Bookmark it and visit uh, every day. In fact, you can subscribe to get your daily dose of the dub, and it'll get emailed right to your inbox. My guest 
is Jake Neighbors of the Edmonton Oil Kings. Jake, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me on, Guy. No problem. Uh, and I've actually been uh, looking forward to having you on for a while. A big year for you. You're playing well. The team is playing well. I think everything is going pretty much according to plan, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. I think coming into the year, we had some uh, expectations as a team and obviously personally. And, uh, you know, so far, like you said, it's going pretty good for us. Right now, the team in first place in the uh, in the Eastern Conference and uh, right there at the top of the standings in uh, the entire league. A uh, bit of a cushion between yourself and Lethbridge, but things uh, can change so quickly in this league. You really can't afford to take a night off, can you? Yeah, no, for sure. I think, uh, especially in the division we're playing in, I think every night we got to be on top of our game. And uh, we still got four games remaining here against Lethbridge, I believe. So, yeah. um, you know, anything can happen in those games and they can tighten it up on us uh, pretty quick. So uh, we got to stay on top of our game and, and just keep winning here and, and try to expand our league or our lead and or uh, just hold it where it's at. Yeah, pretty busy weekend, too. You got uh, a game on Friday, you got Medicine Hat on Saturday, and then those Hurricanes on Monday. But you can't look past Regina. I mean, those are two points that are just as valuable as two points against anybody else. Yeah, I think anytime you you have the opportunity to get two points, you want to you know take that opportunity. And um, I think just because of where Regina's at in the standings doesn't mean we can take them lightly. I think you know they work hard. They're a lot like a team like Red Deer, and they're going to come out and push you physically. And, and we got to be ready for that and, and make sure that uh, we get two points. For yourself, Jake, second full year in the league. You did play 11 games in your uh, previous season before uh, last year, before your full rookie year, but um, you've already blown past last year's numbers. I know last year you you missed a a chunk of time due to injury, but what were your expectations coming into this year in regards to the amount of numbers you thought you could put together? Is this what you expected? Are you exceeding your expectations, or do you still have more to go, do you think? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, obviously there's always room for development, but um, obviously with, you know, the amount of guys that we had exit last year that were big scorers for us, I think it was important for me to come into this year, um, you know, knowing that I'm going to get a bigger role and, and kind of embracing that. And I think I've done a pretty good job of it. And, um, as far as where I'm at right now, I, I'm happy with my numbers. I think I've maybe exceeded, you know, um, where I thought I could be this year for sure. And, um, you know, so that's, that's good to, for the confidence, uh, for sure. But, um, you know, I still think I have more untapped potential and, you know, I'm trying to release and maybe become a more of a consistent player um, in the league every single night. So, um, you know, there's definitely, you know, more room for growth. And uh, but for sure, I'm happy with where I'm at and the numbers I've produced. Now, I, I'm spoiled because I get to watch uh, the Oil Kings uh, all the time. Uh, so I know the answer to some of these questions. But for the audience that doesn't have that ability, uh, who have you been your line mates for the, the most part this year? Yeah, I think kind of. Um, for the most part, I've been playing with Riley Sawchuk for sure. And then um, as of late, about just before Christmas and after Christmas, um, it's been pretty consistent that we've had Dylan Gunther on our wing and us three have worked pretty well, I think. so. Yeah, you got a, a seasoned veteran like Sawchuk and then the uh, the young rookie in in, uh, in Dylan Gunther, expectations pretty high for him uh, next year and, and his, in his WHL career. Do you almost find like you're taking on a bit of a, a leadership role in regards to him and helping bring him along a bit? Yeah, for sure. I think, uh, you know, Dylan's a very mature kid and, you know, he knows his game and what he needs to do every single night. But I think, you know, there's obviously some adjustments for every single player that's, you know, stepped into the league. And um, I've been here for Dylan to, you know, help him out with any questions he's needed or, um, you know, just, you know, being a nice guy in terms of making him more comfortable at the start of the year and, you know, maybe some new faces for him. So, um, but yeah, I think he's done a heck of a job stepping up and, and you know, being a big time producer for us. And um, he's having a heck of a rookie season and, um, you know, he's a great guy in the room as well. So um, he's doing great things for sure. 
Jake Neighbors is my guest. He's a forward with the Edmonton Oil Kings. This is the 2020 Draft Spotlight segment. And uh, I told you before we started that not everybody that's hearing this interview right now will uh, be WHL fans and, and may have never seen you play. Uh, but come draft day, they're going to want to know who Jake Neighbors is. So let's get some uh, background, if you don't mind. Jake, where are you from? Yeah, so I'm from uh, Airdrie, Alberta. I grew up there until um, I was about 13, summer of 13. I moved away to Kelowna, played a year of hockey in Kelowna, and came back and was in South Calgary with my father. And I played uh, my midget year there with the Calgary Buffaloes. And mm-hmm. um, ever since, I've you know been with the Oil Kings. And uh, yeah, for yeah. Have you always been a forward, Jake, or at any point during your minor hockey career did you find yourself on the blue line or, heck, even throw the pads on uh, once or twice? Yeah, I think I played goalie maybe in tight with no pads on. But, um, <laughs> no, I, I played defense actually for, you know, a couple of years when I was uh, probably in that age of seven to nine. I think I played hockey and or I played defense, sorry. And, um, you know, I was pretty good at it in terms of rushing the puck and that was kind of the idea that, um, you know, I'd switch to forward and see how that went. And ever since, kind of just took it off from that point and um, been a steady forward from that from then on. So, take me back to the Bantam draft uh, and tell me what that day was like for you. I've, I've talked to a lot of players on the show, and you know, some of them got to stay home from school. Uh, a lot other others would be at school and just following along on their phones or something. What was a uh, draft day like for you? Yeah, for me, I was uh, actually playing in a tournament in Philadelphia. Um, I had a bunch of, you know, highly touted Western League hockey prospects on my team. And we actually had a game that, that morning. So we didn't really know where we were going to be at. We, the game was done when we, we got to about the 15th pick, if I remember correctly. And, uh, you know, most of us on the team have gone already. And uh, it was pretty cool when I got off the ice and saw my family and just gave them a big hug and, you know, kind of felt accomplished. Uh, you put in a lot of hard work during that season. Um, you know, you play a lot of hockey to, you know, showcase yourself and try and get yourself in the best possible um, situation you can. I think I've done a good job of that. I couldn't be happier with where I am now. So um, obviously it means more to more and more to me every single day as I, you know, enjoy my time here at the Oil Kings. And But yeah, for sure, it was an amazing day. Now, you're a Calgary area kid from Airdrie, but, uh, you know, close enough to Calgary to say that you're from that area. Uh, pretty healthy rivalry between uh, Calgary and Edmonton. So what did it mean for you? What was your initial reaction when you heard it was the Oil Kings? Was part of you like, oh, man, I got to go to Edmonton? Or, I don't know, were you excited about it? I, I think I was super excited about it. I never really had, uh, you know, a big uh, support, you know, stand for the for the Hitmen themselves. So, um, you know, I was super happy when I found that I got to go to Edmonton. And, you know, playing Rogers Place, obviously, is a part of it. And, um, you know, I think ever since almost I've been here, the rivalry's kind of picked up a little bit. Some of the guys said it, it wasn't much of one before, but, mm. um, you know, it's really picked up lately and, uh, you know, over the last two years. And it, it's been super exciting for me to, you know, get to play those super meaningful games and high-intensity games in my hometown and have a lot of family and friends there to see it. Um, it's something special. It's fun. Now, Mark Pesek, I remember telling me he w- he grew up a Calgary Flames fan and obviously cheering for them behind enemy lines here as he was an Edmonton kid. What about for you as an NHL f- uh, fan? Uh, who was your team uh, as a youngster? I was the same. I was, uh, you know, kind of across enemy lines. I was an Oilers fan growing up. Uh, most of my family is from Saskatchewan, so they kind of had the choice on what team they wanted to choose for, no team being out there. And, um, you know, all of them have been Oilers fans um, from my grandpa's, great grandpa's, all the way down to me. So um, it was kind of just gifted to me almost. But yeah, I've been, uh, I've been an Oilers fan um, from day one. and. Uh, you know, still on now. So 
So a little extra special. You get to play in the same building, and uh, I'm, I know you're not uh, hanging out with them on a daily basis, but you might cross paths with them every once in a while uh, at Rogers Place. That's got to be pretty cool. Yeah, it's super cool for sure. I think uh, the whole idea of you know cheering for a team your whole life and then all of a sudden you're right down the hall from is pretty exciting. And um, you know, I think you know you almost grow accustomed to it when you're playing in this building. But you know, you kind of take take a step back and. Um, you know, just remember your your days as a kid and how much you love this team, and it's pretty cool for sure. Now, for fans who have never seen you play a game, uh, how would you describe yourself? Give me a, a bit of a self scouting report on Jake Neighbors. Yeah, I think I'm a two way power forward who, um, you know, plays with a with an edge in his game and brings a lot of physicality as much as I can. And but at the same time, I I think I possess skill and um, you know, vision to make plays and and score goals as well. So. Um, you know, I think the biggest tangible to my game is kind of that physical aspect and maybe being a bit of a pest out there sometimes. But, um, you know, I, I think at the same time, I, you know, I skate well and um, I can get around the ice and make plays. And, um, yeah. 5'11", about 200 pounds. Is that, are those accurate numbers? About 5'11 and a half, I think 194. 5'11 and a half. You got to throw the half in. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's on a bad hair day. <laughs> yeah. When you're looking at the rest of this season, between now and the draft, uh, lots can happen. Obviously, playoffs, things like that. But are there parts of your own game that you're still trying to hone and and uh, to to work on the most to get prepared for the next level? Yeah, I think you know, like I said earlier, there's always uh, um, room for growth. And um, I think for me, what came really clear for me early in the season was just kind of what made me special and you know what separated me from other players and. Um, you know, I think just perfecting that craft uh, over the season is something I, you know, I'm going to continue to work on and making it more effective and, and making it consistent as well. I think the type of game I play, it's not going to be there every single night, but, um, you know, finding a way to, to make it there as much as you can and, and being an effective player every single night um, is something I'm definitely trying to work on. And, um, you know, obviously skating, shooting, um, strength, all those things need to be developed to play at the next level. And, um, you know, I think there's growth for every player out there and obviously for me as well. So, um, you know, the biggest thing for me is continue to grow and, and just keep getting better. Now, big season for you, obviously, that it is your draft year and started way back in August for you getting to play in the Holinka Gretzky Cup. What was that opportunity like getting to go overseas and represent your country? Yeah, super special for sure to get to, you know, fly over there with 20 guys and, you know, put on that jersey and, and you know, those guys are such high-class guys, high-class players and, um, it was super, super uh, good experience for me to get over there and, you know, meet some new faces and maybe uh, reconnect with some old ones. And, um, you know, like I said earlier, just kind of throwing on that jersey is something special every single time. So, um, you know, it was a super cool experience for me, for sure. No points, though, in the tournament uh, in five games. And stats don't always, uh, you know, tell the whole story. How did you feel about the way you played there? Yeah, I think uh, I think I had a different role there. I don't think necessarily points was something I was focused on there. And, yeah. Um, you know, we had guys like Byfield, Perfetti, Lapierre, and uh, you know Jarvis. They were going to score the goals, and I think you know that's something when you play for Hockey Canada, you're going to have a different role almost every time. And you know, I took pride in being a leader and um, you know playing a strong 200 foot game and and being physical and blocking shots. And I had a heavy PK role, so um, you know, obviously, I think I think I did my part well, and um, you know, obviously numbers are something that you know i like to bring as well and it would have been nice to you know pot a couple goals there or something but um i think overall i i had a steady tournament i thought i wasn't bad to any sense and um obviously could have been better but um i didn't think i was horrible or anything like that so no the reports i got were that even though there was no production you were one of canada's best players uh, in the tournament and the fact that you can play any anywhere in the top 
you know, in the forward group and, and take on any responsibility. Being that sort of Swiss Army knife player, uh, that's pretty valuable. Yeah, for sure. I think uh, in that tournament, I had a taste of, you know, every single role. I, um, you know, got a couple shifts on the power play, maybe if I was lucky. And <laughs> and then, uh, you know, played in a, on a really good line with Byfield and Jarvis there for the round robin for the most part. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, that was pretty special, two high-end players. And, you know, we had success for sure. And um, and then I got, you know, moved down in the lineup a little bit to try and create some more offense. Maybe we were slumping a little bit. And, um, you know, plays really great, Jean-Luc Foody, which, you know, is a, a hell of a third line. So, um, you know, it was a great experience for me. I jumped all around and obviously, like I said, played that PK role and being flexible is something I take pride in and I think is very valuable as well. So, Just a couple more minutes with uh, Jake Neighbors here of the Edmonton Oil Kings. Uh, the draft, uh, I guess, we're, what, about four months away. Uh, do you spend much time thinking about it? Because, you know, I, again, I talk to a lot of players and some guys say they don't want to think about it because it could be a distraction. Other guys say, I want to see where I'm ranked. It's a bit of a motivator. What about for you, Jake? Yeah, I think uh, for me, I'm more of a guy who's just kind of focused on what's going on here in Edmonton and what we're doing. And, I mean, obviously, I'm going to look at the rankings and things like that. But, um, you know, no matter where you are, I think you got to be hungry all the time. I think, you know, if you're high, you want to stay there. If you're low, you want to move up. And uh, so whatever way you put it, you're gonna, you want to stay hungry. So, um, for me, I'm just focusing on what's going on here. And I think, you know, maybe a bit earlier in the season when you're talking to teams and, um, it's in your brain a little bit more, but you know now that we're getting down to playoffs, uh, they kind of leave you alone maybe a little bit, and let you focus on your club, and um, you know so I'm really starting to you know try to perfect my game here and uh, tighten things up here um, around the dressing room uh, to go into this playoff stretch here. So there's really no question if you're going to get drafted, so there's no pressure that way. Does it matter where? Like if you're a first round pick or you're just inside the second round, is that a big difference in your mind, or is there something about being? a first-round pick, that that's a, a goal you want to achieve? Yeah, I think obviously it's a goal for me to go in the first round. and um, You know, it's obviously pretty special to go in, that, in the first round there and, and, you know, be recognized like that. But I think at the same time, if I slip to the second uh, or the third, I'm not going to be upset about it. Um, you know, I think I've done what I what I can to make a name for myself and, um, you know, make myself a highly touted prospect. And, um, you know, I'll just be thankful for whatever team, uh, you know, puts a draft pick on me. So um, I think for me, just the biggest thing is, uh, you know, going in there with an open mind and don't want anything can happen. And, um, you know, you're going up against, you know, 200 players almost that are the best in the world. So, um, you know, if you're going anywhere in those, you know, top two rounds is, is something pretty special. So Excellent. Jake, I really appreciate your time. Uh, enjoy the conversation. Uh, I enjoy getting to watch you play too. You're, uh, you're an easy guy to cheer for, put it that way. Certainly wish you the best of luck. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Key. Appreciate it. There's Jake Neighbors of the Edmonton Oil Kings, and uh, again, uh, I'm I'm not going to claim to be unbiased on this one, but uh, I really like Jake uh, as a person. I think he's a terrific player. I think if he is there in the second round for somebody, they're going to come away with a really solid pick. I think he's first-round caliber. Uh, myself, I know there were questions about uh, his offense and would that come around. That was in the first you know, 20 games of the season. Uh, and then as he started to work his way up the lineup, now he's on the top line. That offense is there. Uh, I know I was given the, the gears to uh, a scouting friend of mine who uh, said, you know, I, I just don't, he's got to bring more offense more consistently. And then he went out and had a four point night that very night. Uh, so that was, that was good timing. So I was giving the gears to, uh, to my buddy there, but uh, Jake neighbors, I think he's a terrific player and will be a terrific NHLer. 
I've drawn the comparison to Ryan O'Reilly. Now, O'Reilly's a center, and, and neighbors, well, he can play all three positions, but predominantly uh, a winger. But when I use that comparison, I'm thinking power forwards who aren't like 6'3 and 220 pounds, um, but can obviously contribute offensively and have that leadership caliber, that leadership quality. And Ryan O'Reilly was a second-round pick. So uh, if neighbors happens to be a second-rounder, I think that's um, – Somebody's going to come away with a uh, a real, I'm not going to say a steal, uh, but I think a, a very solid prospect in uh, in Jake Neighbors. All right, one more segment to go on this week's episode. We're going to hear some bonus audio. Uh, Cam Moon had a conversation with uh, Brent Sutter, the head coach of the Red Deer Rebels, on the morning of game 1000 uh, behind the bench for the Rebels. A nice milestone there for sure. Uh, so I wanted to share that audio. We'll hear that when we come back. You're listening to The Pipeline Show with Keith Flaming. Down the left side. Pass over to Ashton. Oh, what a stop! Darcy Kemper. What a gutsy performance this evening at the NMAX Centrio. This is Cam Moon, voice of the Red Deer Rebels, and you're listening to The Pipeline Show. There's a lot of people with disabilities that can't just go out and find a job. So we set out to create a business to fill those needs, one stick at a time. The store next door gift shop is a Yarmouth-based manufacturer and retail outlet store. So we make great ideas that any of our employees come up with, and we reuse and recycle as much as possible. Our most popular item is probably our hockey furniture. We take broken hockey sticks and turn them into different products. We go through a lot of hockey sticks. A lot. A whole lot. Considering that it's only been a year and we're shipping internationally, I think that that's been a huge success. Most people's reactions are, wow, you do this here. We don't accept can't here. Everyone here learns in different ways, but we want to give everybody every opportunity to find exactly what works for them. There's nothing better than when a customer buys something and then one of our employees say, I made that. They have meaningful lives and build things they can be proud of and get a paycheck for it. I'm Amy Acker and we change lives one job at a time. You're listening to The Pipeline Show with Gee Flaming. We know each other. He's a friend from work. Uh, yes, a friend from work. Uh, welcome back to the Pipeline Show with Gee Flaming. Uh, I have had the chance to work with Cam Moon several times over the last little while and uh, always appreciate uh, when he invites me to do color for him uh, on the uh, Rebels broadcast. And uh, one of my favorite guys in the Western Hockey League and one of the best guests to get on the show. Well, he provided me with some audio for this week's episode. So you had a chance to sit down with Brent Sutter, the owner, head coach, GM, and uh, head usher uh, for the Red Deer Rebels on the morning where he was about to coach in game 1000 and uh, quite the milestone. Uh, so I wanted to get this audio uh, and share it with you. So uh, here is Cam Moon with Brent Sutter. Here with Brent Sutter, Red Deer Rebel general manager and head coach and game number 1000 in your WHL coaching career, all here with the Red Deer Rebels. Uh, when you think back you know, to 1999, when your first game, uh, coaching this, did you think you'd be sitting here many years later with with a thousand under your belt? No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's uh, time has flown by. Yeah. You know, it's uh, gone by quickly, to be quite honest. And 
I never even thought of it today until you mentioned it to me and it was uh, I'm like like it was almost like really it's but you know what it's uh, just as I've been here a long time I've coached a lot of games and uh, there's been certainly been some uh, good times and some yeah. not as good times well when you look back at it and you look at the good times uh, Memorial Cup championship in 2001 three straight trips to the WHL final 010203. And in 04, it went to the Eastern Conference Final. Uh, what are some of the highlights when you look back on a 1,000 games? Well, you know, the biggest one for me is, you know, each year, you, you, you know, your drive is to get the most you can out of your team and play as well as you can with the group that you have. And, and at the end of the day, it's about the players, right? It's giving them a chance to grow as just not hockey players, but as people and um you know, I look back at those times probably more than anything, and yeah, the winning part is awesome, right? There's nothing because we all love to win, and uh, but you learn sometimes as much as from individuals, and, and individuals learn as much from themselves through the tough times, through in the adversity times, and you know, and we certainly had a little bit of both on those, both on the good and bad, but you know, it's just the way teams grow throughout the year and the way they develop. You know, look, look at this year's team. We, youngest team I've ever coached and uh, you know and the steps we've taken this year has been substantial and yet where you know you have a vision where you hope you're going to be a year or two from now and you just hope to hope it gets there right and you just keep working on it and pushing through it and so you know I think every year it's different and uh, but you know obviously those first few years I remember when I bought the team in 99 and I got crucified for saying this I said that we were going to Win a Memorial Cup within three years, and uh, in a press conference when we when I purchased a team or when our family purchased a team, and I uh, I was like, oh boy, the heat's on now, and you know we won it in the second year, and obviously those next uh, three years after were you know were pretty good rides, and we just haven't been able to get back to that, but we have to continue to push and move forward, and it's a lot harder now, obviously, just with as many teams as there are, and it's a lot harder to do things in your league than you used to be able to as far as trades and and building your team. So it's a little bit different now, certainly. But those years, those first years of winning like we did was uh, really kind of kick-started everything. And, uh, and I think just from an organizational point of view, how our organization has grown over the years and and uh, and you know the the process of all that to to become an elite franchise not always going to be an elite team but an elite franchise where you're lo- looked up to across the hockey circles and the amount of players that get drafted the amount of players that go to CIS and go to really top schools so at the end of the day that's it's all about the players right but uh, you continue to push forward with that and continue to make sure that uh, you know you're you're trying to do things right year by year. Here with Brent Sutter, talking about 1,000 games coaching in the WHL. And Brent, uh, it's a lot of things have changed over that time from the from the time of '99 uh, within the league, uh, within coaching, within the game of hockey. Uh, what are some of the changes that are the most significant for you? Well, probably the biggest one is just uh, the the change in times with mindset of players right and um, you know I call it the 80-20 rule Uh, back in the day um, you know you never worried about 80% of your players they just you know they just 
got it and they knew how to motivate themselves they knew there's there was uh just internal push within them to be the best they can be and for your team to be really successful and then you were there's 20 percent you were always you know dealing with and trying to get them through over that hump and uh and for them to be mentally strong enough and um you know and buy into the pack mentality and all that and now it's the opposite right and uh you're 20 percent you don't worry about but 80 percent you're continuing to trying to get them to help them through all that and uh it's just a whole different mindset now and and dealing with young players uh it's just the way it is and it's the same way in the nhl level you talk to gms at the nhl level they're going through the same thing and and that's what you try to do is trying to get these guys ready for professional hockey whether it's there or the top cis schools wherever it may be and get them in that proper mindset because they come out of minor hockey where they're all stars and um then when they get to our level um they're not not all of them are going to be and they got to be able to accept different roles on their team and it's hard for and and understandably so and uh yet it's a lot of work to get someone to change and and that's probably been the biggest thing for me is over time is just how the game has changed not just within the rules of the game and the game of hockey and and how it's changed but just the personalities and the way players look at things over the you know over the 20 years uh 20 you know it's been it's certainly been uh something that you have to adapt to and adjust to and your mindset has to be different am i am i a different coach now than i was five six years ago or 10 or 15 20 years ago absolutely you have to be you have to adjust with the times and so that's probably been the biggest change for me well brent uh, good to sit down with you congrats on the thousand games and thanks for doing this yeah thanks Mona. there you go uh cam moon the voice of the red Deer rebels with uh brent sutter who uh, now has a thousand games under his belt behind the bench for the Red Deer Rebels in the Western Hockey League. And that does it for this week's episode. And at the end of every show, that means it's time for me to uh, enjoy a, another brew from Troubled Monk. And this week, uh, I have picked the uh, Bucktooth Belgian White. Have not tried this one yet, so this will be the first time. Uh, I always like the stories and stuff on the uh, sides of the can, the write-ups. Uh, this one, uh, a tribute to uh doris forbes and uh mickey the beaver funny story that they have uh, written up on the side of the can i don't know how true it is uh but it's uh, it's creative uh but the end of the write-up says enjoy it's creamy light body citrus and spicy notes with your own unusual friends uh, i don't have any friends with me at the moment but let's do this all right let's try that is a smooth craft beer for sure. They have the uh, little graph on the side of the can uh, with different categories, and uh, the maltiness is way down, the hop bitterness is way down on this one. So if uh, maybe you've tried, if you're a person who's tried a craft beer in the past and you've been like, oh, that's a little overpowering for me, I think this one will be right up your alley. Try the, the Bucktooth Belgian White from Troubled Monk. Uh, go down to your uh, local liquor store or your beer store and uh, ask them for the Troubled Monk, and if they don't have it, then demand that they get it. Stop by the tap room next time you're in Red Deer. I'm actually planning on doing that in a couple weeks. Oil Kings are down in Red Deer on the 29th. Mooner has already uh, talked to me and said, uh, hey, let's go check out the tap room together. So I think we'll do that before uh, the game that night. Of course, you'll be in one booth. I'll be in the Oil Kings booth uh, with uh, Andrew Peard. 
but that is a couple of weeks away. That does it for this week's episode of the show. Thanks to the uh, guests that you heard from. Also, thanks to Mooner for supplying that audio of him and uh, Brent Sutter in conversation. Next week, a couple more ladies uh, that I'm, uh, I have one already locked up that I'll be chatting with early in the week and another one on my short list to talk to. And there'll be another 2020 draft spotlight. And who knows what else we'll have in store for you next week here on the Pipeline Show. But between now and then, get out and watch some junior college hockey so that you and I can talk about it next week. Until then, my name's Keith Flaming. See ya.